Our reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. It's entitled, God's Covenant with Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man too I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. We've come to the end of a sermon series on the opening chapters of Genesis. I hope it's been uh, helpful for you. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, it seems a few weeks ago now, but uh, we did look um, a while back at Genesis uh, chapter 2, and uh, we're looking at the need of a holy day or a holiday. And um, one of the publications I quoted from them was this one, Sports and Sundays. Um, there's another one here called Celebrating Sundays. Um, these are on sale in the book room. If you'd like a copy of those, do have a word with Charles afterwards. They're £2 each. I was um, very alarmed a short while ago to receive this uh, following email from a friend. I'm sure others will have received this email as well. It said, um, you should be alert during the next few days. Do not open any message with an attachment entitled Postcard from Hallmark, regardless of who sent it to you. It's a virus which opens a postcard image 
which burns the whole hard disk C of your computer. It's been classified by Microsoft as the most destructive virus ever. This virus was discovered by McAfee yesterday, and there is no repair yet for this kind of virus. It simply destroys the zero sector of the hard disk where the vital information is kept. I don't know whether you've ever had that experience of a virus which has completely disabled your computer. Um, It did happen to us this last Christmas, um, just as Ben had finished writing an English assignment, which was taking him a few days to write. And um, in desperation, I phoned the Dell hotline and was put through to a technician who went through several steps with me of how to restore my computer. And just as I was about to press the return button, I asked him, well, what actually happens to all the rest of the files on my hard disk when I do this? He said, well, they just all get deleted. (laughs) I said, well, you know, someone who might not be too happy about that. Um, So I thanked him for his help and uh, took the computer down to the uh, the computer repair shop. And the man confirmed there was actually nothing that he could do about it. But he could um, rescue my hard drive and some of the precious files that might be on it. So as the computer was wiped clean, I was able to reload a few files and make a fresh start until the next virus, of course. Now, I'm sure by now you've spotted some of the similarities with the story of Noah. As God wiped the earth clean, he started afresh with one family. And through that family, he was able to continue with his plans for the whole of humankind. Now, we have seen how God has made the world for our enjoyment in this series. We've seen how he's made us in our image, how he gave us freedom, how he gave us responsibility, the ability to enjoy intimate relationships with other people. And yet, we've also seen the impact of sin on our world. Last week, we looked at the fatal consequences of sin on family relationships as people ignore the warnings that God has given them. This morning we're going to look at what happened when sin was allowed to remain unchecked, how God felt about that and how he responded to it. But most importantly, how his plan for humankind remained unchanged, that his glory would spread throughout the world and be seen in his people. As the glimmer of hope that we left uh, chapter 4 last week remains a light. Well, the story of the flood is a very familiar story. I'm sure if you're a visitor here this morning and, and don't normally come to church, at least this story of the flood and Noah, well, you'll know something about it. Um, it's often thought as a bit of a, a children's story. After all, it's got all the, the right ingredients, hasn't it? The uh, animals, it's got a boat, it's got water, and it's got a rainbow. What more can you ask for? But of course, the uncensored version of this story is far from a pleasant read. We're made into a film and were to receive a rating, it would probably be more like an 18. There's a terrifying story of God's anger, God's judgment, in which the whole of humankind, with the exception of one family, is annihilated. So what does it tell us about ourselves? The first thing it tells us is that the heart of humankind is evil. The Bible contains some clear descriptions of man's depravity. In Psalm 51, David writes, Surely I was sinful at birth. Surely from the time my mother conceived me. 
As a result of the fall that we looked at at the beginning of this series, man cannot help but act in a way that is self-centred rather than God-centred. And that has affected our whole beings. Even our most charitable acts are tainted with, with sin. And if we think they are actually quite good, then you know, we're guilty of pride. Last week in chapter 4, we saw the consequences of the, fall, of the fall on relationships. The first murder, as Cain becomes jealous over his brother Abel and ends up killing him. We see how his, his great-great-great-grandson Lamech ends up committing bigamy. Um, he also kills a young man in an act of revenge and then boasts about it. As we know, there's nothing worse, as we've seen recently in the news in Bradford with a self-named crossbow cannibal. There's nothing worse than a murderer showing a complete lack of remorse for what he has done. Sin is spiralling out of control here. By the time we get to chapter 6, in verse 5, have a look down. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the result was, verse 11, that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. Sin, if left unchecked, gets worse. It's like the weeds that seem to to like our garden. There's a patch that every year seemed to get out of control with these uh, triffid-like nettles growing to the size of a, of a man. And eventually I decided to dig them all up and have done with them to plant grass seed. That would be the solution. It'd be, it was great just to see these blades of grass slowly growing up. Of course, close behind them, there were the weeds again, poking their heads out, having a good laugh. Sin is part of our fallen state. It affects all humans. And so, at the end of the day, we all deserve judgment. It's easy to read these verses and think, well, that's got nothing to do with me. But sin affects all human beings. And if that's the case, and at the time of Noah, everyone was sinful, then the question that this raises is, why did God save Noah and his family? Have a look at verse 8. It's not here that Noah wasn't sinful, but what does it say? Verse 8, it says, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. He walked faithfully with God. In other words, he accepted that he was sinful, he accepted that his sin was evil, that he deserved to be judged along with the rest of humankind, but he trusted in God for God's grace for God's mercy, and he turned from his sin and walked with God. And that is what blameless means, turn from your ways and to follow God's ways. In his inner being, Noah wanted to follow God, even if he sometimes failed him, as we all do, because of the weakness of his human nature. And the word righteous here doesn't mean he, he stopped sinning, but it means that he trusted in God for his righteousness. He trusted in God that God would forgive him. As it says in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And in fact... 
Later on, after the flood, we are given an example of Noah's continuing sin. Over in chapter 9, verse 20, it says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. And his own sin leads to the sin of one of his sons. So after the fall, whether it's before the flood or after the flood, human nature is corrupt and sin needs to be dealt with. And eventually God says here, going back to chapter 6, verse 5, God says, well, enough's enough. Look at his reaction to, to man's sinfulness there in, in verse 5. Actually, verse 6. It says, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. It's a feeling of pain, isn't it? Some people's image of God is someone who, who sort of waits for people to make mistakes, and then likes to sort of pounce and punish them in some sort of vindictive style. That is not the God of the Bible. Some, for some people, he's a bit like, if you ever saw that series, Ashes to Ashes, there's a character there called Jim Keats, who was out to try and catch DCI Gene Hunt. Not a very likeable character, you sort of wonder what he was doing there, and as the final episode revealed, he was actually um, an illustration of the devil. It's the devil who's out to prowl, who's out to devour people. But God is pained at people's sin. He's grieved, it says here. He's a loving father who, who grieves when his children go astray. Like any children, like any parent rather, whose children would spurn their love. Like any parent whose children would ignore their advice. And as a result, slip into to bad ways and eventually mess up their lives. Ultimately, they are their own people. Ultimately, they have to make their own choices, but it doesn't make it any easier. Of course, it doesn't mean, as parents, we all get it right, does it, all the time, contrary to the instructions that we are given as parents in the Bible. We're told to um, not exasperate our children, and yet we do that sometimes. Sometimes we get that balance wrong, don't we, between too little and too much freedom and responsibility. Sometimes we anger with a sense of we discipline with a sense of anger instead of, of love. But God is a perfect Father. He's only shown kindness to His people. He's asked them to honour Him and to respect Him. He's the one who created them in the first place. And you have to ask yourself: How can the one who is responsible for your very existence not deserve such respect and worship? And yet the sad thing is that people do choose not to worship him. They do choose to do their own thing. And there comes a point where God says, well, enough's enough. If you don't want the blessings that I have promised for you, then I will withdraw them from you. Chapter 6, verse 12, says, God saw how corrupt the people had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And the way in which he decides to do that is to send a flood. It says in verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. And that is precisely what happened. It is a reversal of God's creation. It's a return to the chaos, to the emptiness there was before God made land, before he made living creatures, and it's quite frightening. But whilst on one hand we would say, well, it's not a children's story, is it? We like to protect our children from the horror of death. 
And yet, on the other hand, it is quite a simple story that children can understand. People continue to do bad things and disobey God and God punishes them. When Jesus came, he didn't hold back in warning people that the same would happen to them if they continued to reject God. Except it was eternal punishment he was talking about. It gets to the point when God has to act. But in this story of Noah, there's some good news. Because God doesn't give up on his plans for humankind. God doesn't give up on us. When he decides to wipe people off the earth, he's not saying, look, I must have made a bit of a mistake here. I wish I'd never made them. That would be to admit that there was nothing he could do about the situation, to say that he he couldn't have predicted what would happen when he created people, which, of course, is wrong. As God, he knows exactly what would happen. He wanted to create people, though, with whom he could have a meaningful relationship, not just programmed robots. By creating man in his image, God's intention was to fill the earth with his glory. And he could only do that if there were people who were willing to glorify him by trusting in him, displaying God's righteousness to the world. And Noah was an incredible example of that, wasn't he? You know, to build a boat the size of one and a half football pitches with just your family helping you would have taken years. It's bad enough putting up a tent with my family helping me, but... Um, <laughs> Noah was miles from the sea and would have faced constant ridicule. It would cost him a lot of money. You can imagine if you watch uh, Grand Designs, Kevin MacLeod coming along to see progress on the ark. So Noah, how's it going? How much have you overspent then by? So where did you hope to get to by this stage in the construction process? Sort of nodding understandably, thinking, what a crazy idiot. And yet Noah trusted in God. And as he comes out of the ark, it says in chapter 9, verse 1, as Martin read, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. By preserving Noah and his family, God is making a fresh start. The mission he gives Noah is the same as he gave to Adam previously. Be fruitful and increase in number. But of course, things have changed since Adam. When God gave Adam and Eve that command, uh, it was in the Garden of Eden. It was in paradise. Sin had not yet entered the world. There was only the potential for sin. But now sin is very real, which means there are threats to mankind. You know, if sin has affected the animal world, then the animals are a threat to man. And so God makes animals fear man. He even gives man the right to eat animals, it says here, for food. Now that murder has uh, come into the world, man is made accountable for the blood of another man. Murder is an attempt to to remove the image of God that that God has created in man. And so murder becomes a capital offence, it says here. There's also been a judgment. And so there must be the possibility of God punishing humankind again in the same way. Which is why, to reassure people of their safety, God makes a new covenant in verse 9. He says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. 
Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. The sign of that covenant is, of course, the rainbow. Now, in some ways, there will be a nice end to the story, wouldn't there? The picture of a rainbow, that's the end of flood, of judgment. But it leaves you feeling a little bit unsatisfied, doesn't it? It's a bit like watching you know, one part of a trilogy, maybe the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yes, it was a good story in itself, but there are still lots of loose ends that need tying up. What about them? And if you think, what is the biggest loose end that needs tying up in this story... It's what happens to sin. You know, we've said sin is still there in the world. It was there before the flood. It's still there after the flood. The flood hasn't got rid of it. God hates sin. And yet here, he hasn't dealt with it. So how will he deal with that problem that is still there? Well, there's a clue here in this story as to how God will deal with it. So if we look at how Noah, what they did the first thing when they came out of the ark. Remember, they've been cooped up in the ark for about a year, which is not quite as long as the, uh, the Russian astronauts who are simulating a trip to Mars and have uh, decided to live in a space capsule for 18 months. Of course, they wouldn't have had any smelly animals in a space capsule, I guess, but um, this is somebody who's just got married. But uh, interesting one. Um, you can imagine Noah and his family would have spent the evenings talking about God, what, what are we going to do when we come out of this ark? What, you know, what is the first thing you're going to do? Well, I'm going to climb a tree. I'm going to look for some, some flowers, find some decent food. But actually, the first thing they do, if you look at um, verse 20 of chapter 8, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. He knows here that the flood hasn't dealt with his sin. He knows he needs to seek God's mercy. And in response, it says in verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. God's gracious covenant with Noah here was a a response to a sacrifice. The way God dealt with the sin of humankind was in response to a sacrifice. Of course, a much greater sacrifice. The sacrifice of the only true sinless man, Jesus Christ. His sacrifice, in which he died on our behalf, provided the final remedy for sin. And it's only as we put our trust in him do we receive God's righteousness? Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection meant the end to sin. That was the final solution that was being pointed to here. Now, of course, that begs the question, well, what was the purpose of the flood then if it didn't deal with sin? And for that, we need to turn to uh, the New Testament, where there are three key passages here that refer to Noah and the flood. Let's uh, go first to 2 Peter 3. Verse 5 to 7. Page 1224 in the Church Bibles. It says here, But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. 
By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The flood demonstrated God's anger at sin. You know, if God makes us, gives us a role, if he gives us that freedom, that responsibility, all the, the aspects of humanity of being made in his image, as we said earlier, he expects us to acknowledge his sovereignty, his lordship. If we don't, then we can't expect him to continue to be gracious to us. The sad thing is that we live in a world which is no different from the world at the time of Noah. In Matthew 24 it says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. It is the same today, isn't it? People are living with their heads in the sand. If you are someone here this morning who is not yet a Christian, I hope you are here this morning because you realise there must be something more to life. You know, we can't just be a random accident, a freak of nature. You can make a fresh start, not by trying harder to do good, but by putting your trust in Jesus Christ who has done everything for you. For those of us who are already Christians, if we don't let people know about how they can be saved from this future judgment, how, how will they know? We don't know when Jesus will come again. But we need to be ready. And part of that is letting people know. Well, the second reason for the flood is that it pointed to the final salvation. Have a look at 1 Peter this time, chapter 3, verse 20. I shall start a bit earlier in verse 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. Page 1219. It says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. The water, as we finish of the flood, pointed to the, the water of baptism. It symbolised the salvation that Jesus has achieved for us by his resurrection. The same Jesus who now sits at the right hand of the Father. By his grace, by his mercy, he saved a handful of people from that first judgement. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means salvation is open to all who put their trust in him. Finish with the words from 2 Peter 3, which says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance.